you so much. You may be seated and welcome everyone on this glorious, glorious Sunday, Palm Sunday. Isn't it beautiful? And aren't we thankful that the king was willing to go all the way to Jerusalem and begin that final week that would lead to his suffering and sacrifice on the cross and then his glorious resurrection. And so we welcome you all today to another opportunity to celebrate and worship the King. Wonderful to see the house full here and all you that are joining us online worshiping in the hub. A great, great morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. While you're uh, turning there, of course, we are uh, entering into what we often refer to as Holy Week and we're excited and looking forward to the Good Friday service, as has been mentioned, and then also our celebration of resurrection next Sunday morning. A great week. But also wanted to encourage you to be a part uh, of our gatherings later this afternoon. Our members meeting is uh, scheduled for 4.30, and we will be sharing some important things uh, about welcoming new members into our fellowship, but also some updates and some important things about our building uh, process here at the church and uh, calling our church to a response on a proposal from our elders. So that'll be at 4.30. And then when that's finished, we're going to enter enter into a a family gathering, a time of uh, focused on what God's put on my heart as a result of this passage and help us to enter into this passage that we're going to open this morning, maybe in a more focused way as a church. We're going to focus on a word here, chapter 10. If you'll notice this morning, if your Bible's open, verse 1, Paul said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Of course, as we're going to see, he's talking about his kinsmen, the uh, Israelites, that his heart's burden for them, his heart's desire, prayer for them is to be saved. I'm going to ask us to be considering this morning and also as we gather for a time of prayer this evening, who is our them? Who would you place there? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for is that they might be saved. I want us to think about our most wanted. And tonight, our prayer time, we're going to focus on West Park's most wanted. Who is on our heart and should be in our prayers, our own personal and those who are part of our family, to pray that they might be saved? Is anything more important than that in light of eternity? No. So I think we'll have a wonderful time tonight to enter into that kind of prayer. But 
whether you're able to be with us or not, it is a part of this entire passage that we want to make sure we understand that knowing God's grace and having experienced God's grace, it's our longing for those that are near to us that they might be saved. And we're not giving up on them. You've often heard me reference a great 19th century preacher from England, pastor, named Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was an amazing, amazing man. He crammed, he crammed several lifetimes into his 57 years. But he was also, in his day, an enigma to many people. They just couldn't figure him out. Especially many people could not figure out his doctrine <laughs> in some ways. Because Spurgeon was a man who preached with such earnestness the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. He believed and preached on the sovereignty of God in salvation. But he also, at the same time, pleaded with people to come to Christ. He was passionate to hold forth the Bible's clear teaching that salvation is of the Lord and that those who are saved are saved by the unmerited favor of God in Christ. And they are his people that he has brought to himself through his son. And yet this man, Charles Spurgeon, he also, believing that pleaded with people that they might come to Christ and be saved. This confused people sometimes. And on one occasion, someone asked Pastor Spurgeon this. They said, Pastor, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with every person's responsibility to believe? And Pastor Spurgeon answered, it was classic, I don't try to reconcile them. I don't try to reconcile friends. <laughs> I never try to reconcile friends. And there are two friends that go hand in hand through the scriptures. The sovereignty of God, the message of God's sovereignty, and the message of the individual responsibility of people to believe the gospel and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two great teachings go arm in arm. They are not enemies. They do not need to be reconciled. They are friends. And here you see these two friends walking arm in arm in this letter that Paul is writing to the church of Rome. In Romans chapter 9, as we saw last week, he upholds the sovereignty of God and his graciousness in bringing salvation to sinners. 
And then in chapter 10, Paul, and there's no chapter division. You know, in the, in the letter, Paul, he didn't say chapter 10, verse 1. <laughs> he just continued. And he continued from this incredible, un, unimaginable presentation of God's sovereignty. Infinite. And then he brings it right down to people's hearts, pleading and promising them that they might be saved and they can be saved. They go together. That's the light of God's gospel. God's gospel is God's gospel. But listen carefully it's the gospel for all, it's God's gospel. But it's the gospel, the good news for all. You see, the gospel is light in the darkness. And Paul describes the worst kind of darkness. What is the worst kind of darkness that the gospel only can obliterate that darkness? It's the darkness, listen, of religion. The worst form of darkness is religious darkness. The attitude today is this, in many corners. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. As long as you are sincere, it really doesn't matter what you believe. (laughs) You know, earlier this week, I saw a man who sincerely believed the light was green. (laughs) Seemed to be sincerely wrong. At least the officer thought so. Full disclosure, that person was not me. Okay. (laughs) And see me afterward and I'll tell you who it was. Sincere, but sincerely wrong. It's one thing to be sincerely mistaken about a stoplight. It's another thing to be sincerely mistaken about how you come to God and eternal life. Now, Israel as a nation, Paul says, is proof of this. Proof of religious darkness. And in verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about this darkness of religion among his beloved Israelite family. Verses 1 through 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. Israel, he's talking about, for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now notice in these verses, Paul gives us a glimpse into two hearts. 
The, the first heart is the heart of a broken-hearted Paul, the broken heart of Paul. And the glimpse into the other heart is the blinded heart of his people Israel. The broken heart of Paul and the blinded heart of his people Israel. Now listen to the broken heart of Paul. Paul was hated by his people, but like his master, the more they hated him, the more he loved them. Paul had not given up on his people. He never stopped praying for them. In spite of all that he had endured. Verse 1. My heart's desire and continuing prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, something important that we need to note here. Paul has just... In just a few breaths earlier, so to speak, declared the sovereignty of God. That God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And yet, this does not leave Paul with a cold heart and an indifferent heart to lost people. He believed and practiced prayer for evangelism. He believed and practiced personal evangelism. He prayed for his evangelistic efforts and he practiced evangelistic efforts. I recall something happened to me when I was, I guess, 20 years of age or so. I was a junior undergraduate theology major had switched from pre-law because I felt like God had called me to the ministry and when I was in college your junior year they uh, they assigned you to a church to serve in on weekends all all over that region you know because you knew so much now (laughs) you you're you're a sophomore you know what sophomore means don't you wise fool. That's what it literally means. Now we're going to turn you loose on the world. So they assigned us and my friend Terry and I were assigned to Welcome Baptist Church seven miles outside the one stoplight in central South Carolina. There were students and faculty from Clemson University that attended there. And I remember one faculty member who was working on his PhD at Clemson. He was a believer, his wife. And uh, he was also teaching undergraduate classes at Clemson. He had us over for Sunday afternoon meal. We had some incredible meals that year, I'll tell you. But we were there, and during the meal... He made this statement. You know, when I pray, I pray that God would send me to the elect. That uh, I don't want to waste my time with people who are not elect. So I pray that God will send me to his elect. And I just about choked on the chicken right then. (laughs) Because 
I didn't know much, but I knew that wasn't right. I just wasn't smart enough how to tell a PhD why it wasn't right. But I want to tell you one thing I knew in my heart, and I now know more clearly than ever, that's a prayer God ain't never going to answer. (laughs) That's a prayer that should never be offered. It's not even a biblical prayer. Because Jesus said, go to everyone and give the good news to all people. Let everybody hear the gospel of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now I have come over the years to love the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. I love to discuss them. (laughs) Just ask Some folks here in my men's group or the cohort I lead on Tuesday night, I love to discuss them. But if I don't have a warm heart for the lost, rather than discussing the fine points of sovereignty of God, I need to hush up. I need to be quiet. Any theology that cools our heart for the lost, is bogus theology. Here's a helpful quote from someone very strong on the sovereignty of God. Many of you know of him, Dr. John MacArthur, pastor, teacher, California. Here's what he says, quote, The elective decree of God is absolute and certain, but it is a secret choice that he alone knows. It is not our responsibility to try to determine whom God has chosen, but to proclaim the saving gospel to every person who will hear it, praying with Paul's earnestness that they will all receive Christ and be saved. He goes on to say, quote, A theology that does not reflect genuine heartfelt compassion for the lost and a deep desire for their salvation is a theology that is unbiblical. My friend, any theology that freezes your heart and turns off the tears For the lost, as you were once lost, you are saved, is not biblical theology. God deliver us from dry-eyed theologians who do not labor with tears and fervency for the gospel. The answer. What's the answer then? Why are these people not being saved? It's the blinded heart of Israel. We have this heart of Paul, this broken heart. But what's the other heart? It's the blinded heart of these people. Verses 2 and 3. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to the truth. What's the problem? For they being ignorant of the righteousness of God are seeking to establish their own and they don't submit to God's righteousness. Zealous. But the religion of Paul's 
people, for the most part, was heat without light. The vast majority of these people were in total darkness, the worst kind of darkness, the darkness of willful ignorance. Isn't that interesting? Willful ignorance. Willfully ignorant of what? What are these people, these religious people, willfully ignorant of? Two things. First of all, they are ignorant of the nature of God. God is righteous. He is holy. He is altogether unlike us. The Bible says only you are holy. The Bible says there's not a holy person on the entire planet who does not sin and always does right. We are all sinners. But so often we elevate ourselves in our religiousness as if we don't understand God is perfect, perfectly holy. He's the one we must deal with, the righteous one. Not the God of our own creation, the God of creation. And sometimes that's not the same God. What else were they ignorant of? The nature of God and they were ignorant about the nature of mankind. Notice, he says... Ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What was the attempt of religion in Paul's day? To pull God down and to pull man up. Let's get God and man together, God and mankind, by pulling God down and pulling man up. You see, here was the religion. The religion of the day thought that sinners were just weak who needed just a little help from God. Just a little weak and needing a little help. But that's not what the message of the Bible is. The Bible's message is not that we are neat, weak and we need a little help. The Bible's message is we are dead and we need God's life. We need life. That darkness of religion, listen, still holds today. People ignorant of the nature of God. He's just the man upstairs. He, he's, he's just a little above us, our buddy. And we're ignorant of his nature and our nature. And therefore we seek to establish our own righteousness. And we refuse to submit to the righteousness which God has given. And friends, listen. What's so sad, this is not just the situation in Judaism in Jesus' day, Judaism in Paul's day, Judaism in our day, it is the reality of thousands of churches that teach a works religion. 
that somehow, some way, we in our good works can build our tower to God. You know what that's called? Babylon. The mother of all harlots, it says in Revelation. Why does it say that? say that? Because the mother of all false religion, name it what you want, is we, by our ability, will raise ourselves up to God. My friend, the Bible says we cannot lift ourselves up to God, but it says, thank God, He humbled Himself and came to us. He came to us. Any religion with any name on it that teaches we achieve our salvation is Babylon. Babylon. Confusion. It's not the gospel. The message of good works plus God's grace is not the gospel. It's a false gospel. The message of the gospel is God's grace that produces good works. Oh, God's grace works. <laughs> it works. But it's not our works that bring God's grace. It's God's grace in our hearts in Christ giving us life that begins to produce good works. Against this terrible background, drop of religious darkness, Paul then shines the glorious light of the gospel. And that's in verses 4 through 13. Having given us this dark, darkness of religious darkness, he gives us the light of the gospel in verses 4 through 13. The gospel he's going to describe, and I trust that most of us know is a glorious gospel, isn't it? Isn't it just simply glorious? It's glorious. And that's what I'd like you to see. Paul shares the light of a simply glorious, not simple, <laughs> but it is simply glorious gospel that the Lord has provided. Notice, this gospel is all about a simply glorious person. The gospel is all about a person. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He is the fulfilling of the law. Bringing righteousness to everyone who believes. The gospel is a person, Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law. He said, I have not come to destroy the law. I've come to fill it full. Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping the commands of the law. He kept them perfectly. He was without sin. And Jesus fulfilled the law not by just the commands of the law, but by accepting the demands of the law. He accepted in himself the demands of God's justice on sinners. With his dying breath, what did Jesus say? It is finished. Tetelestai. 
it has been completed forever. It is finished. There's no more need of the ceremony. That moment, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, thrown back. I always wondered, can you imagine if you'd have been one of the priests in there at that time? You wouldn't have stopped running until you went past the Mount of Olives when that happened. <laughs> but it was, it was torn back. What's, the, what was, what's God saying when he tears that veil and throws it back? He's saying there's no more need of a temple because God has come in the flesh. He's tabernacled among us and now we are his temple. There's no more need of an altar. His cross is the altar and he is the lamb slain for the sins of the world. We no longer need a table. He is the bread of life. We no longer need a lampstand in the ceremony because he is the light of the world. We no longer need an altar of incense because he's our great high priest who constantly intercedes on our behalf. We have no need of an ark of a covenant with its mercy seat because he is the one who's brought the new covenant in his own flesh. He has become a propitiation for our sins, an atoning sacrifice that completely satisfies the justice of God. We no longer need the glory cloud because we have in Christ the fullness of Godhead bodily. That is our Christ. He's all and in all. And when we believe in Him, we are complete in Him. Not in ourselves. He is the gospel. My friends, understand this. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is not even a prayer. The gospel is a person. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. A Savior has been born this day in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. I have come to give myself a ransom for many. Jesus is the gospel. He that has me has life. And he that does not have me does not have life. This life is in his Son. And he that has the Son has life. Jesus is the gospel. This is Paul's meaning in verses 5 through 7. Listen to what he says. Moses writes about this righteousness that was coming. That's based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. No one could keep that law. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That's to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Here, Paul is loosely quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And here's what Moses was saying. He came down from Mount Sinai with the words of the covenant, the message of the covenant. And he said, I want you to know, you don't have to go up into heaven to get the message. 
You don't have to go down into the abyss of the sea to get the message. It's not far from you. Here, here's the message of the covenant. Now, Paul is saying this is Christ. He is the messenger of the covenant. You don't have to go up into the heavens for some religious experience to find him. You don't have to go down into some depths of incredible darkness in order to find him. He's here among you. He's the word made flesh. The message is here. It's a living message. The message of Christ. Receive him. All the wisdom of God is in Christ Jesus the Lord. God spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And Jesus is God's final word. Everything God has to say about how we can be restored to him is in his son, Jesus. You don't have to go on a, some kind of journey to figure it out. You don't have to go up in some kind of ecstasy of religious oblivion. You don't have to go down into some depths of self-humiliation and abusing yourself. Look to Christ. He's right in front of you. He's right in front of you. He is the Word. He is the Gospel. The Gospel is a simply glorious person, Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> Do you know him? The gospel is all about a simple, simply glorious person. And through him, the gospel is all about a simple, simply glorious profession. A simply glorious profession. Faith is never solitary. Faith must have an object. Listen carefully. Faith is not faith in faith. <laughs> faith is faith in Christ. Faith has an object. And that faith is expressed, true faith is expressed these two wonderful ways. Do you see them? Number one, Faith makes two great professions. First of all, faith professes Jesus is Lord. Faith professes Jesus is Lord. That's the essence of Christianity. Not just a recognition of the mind. It means more. It's a surrender of yourself to that truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Salvation is found in the surrender of your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord. My friend, listen carefully. Jesus is Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You surrender to him as Lord, but you don't make him Lord. There is this idea, this teaching abroad in many circles, that when you become a Christian, you receive Jesus as your Savior, and then maybe later on, you receive Him as your Lord. Friend, 
<laughs> you can't slice Jesus in two that way. And on top of that, do you know how many times Jesus is called Savior in the New Testament? Ten times. Do you know how many times Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament? About 250. He is Savior. Praise God. But He is Savior because He is the Lord. He's the Lord. And there's no division. To confess Jesus as Lord is not just to confess Jesus the Lord. That, that just, that, okay, I just recognize, yeah, Jesus, he's the Lord. That's, no, 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 no. It's to confess Jesus as my Lord. It's personal. I love this quote from, in this particular occasion, it's from a wonderful teacher now with the Lord named James Boyce. But he's quoting a second century Christian who was a leader among the believers. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp. He was a bishop of Smyrna, a church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And during the persecutions of that time, the middle of the second century, as a bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp was martyred. He was martyred for his faith on February 22nd, 156. And as he was being driven to the arena, two city officials who had respect for him because of his age and reputation tried to persuade him to comply with the demand to honor Caesar by just burning some incense to him. What harm is there in saying, they said. What harm is there in saying, Caesar is Lord. And burning incense. And saving yourself, they asked. Polycarp refused. Later, when he was in the arena, he explained his position to the gathered throngs. For 86 years... I have been Christ's slave, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king who saved me? He refused to call Caesar Lord. Why? Because his Lord was Jesus Christ. My king is Jesus the Lord, not Caesar and my friend, for us as Christians, regardless of the age, regardless of where we live, regardless of the situation, of the culture in which we carry out our lives, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. We respect government, but we will not give to government the allegiance that belongs to our King, King Jesus. Amen. We may burn, but we will not bow. 
Our king is Jesus. Faith confesses Jesus is Lord. What else does faith confess? Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. (laughs) Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You confess Jesus as your Lord. And you confess that your Lord has conquered death. And he is alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our salvation. That's what makes Easter Sunday so wonderful. But friend, every Sunday... The first day of the week is a celebration that Jesus was dead and he rose again from the dead the third day. And he's alive forevermore. And he's a savior to all who will believe in him. Every Sunday. And for us, really, isn't it true? Every day. (laughs) Every day is Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Christ confirms our Savior. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. It was a resurrection from the dead that confirmed our Savior. And so resurrection of Jesus that not only confirms our Savior, it is that which confirms our salvation. Romans 4.25 He was delivered up for our transgressions. And He was raised for our justification. He was raised so that those who believe in Him can be declared justified. Because why? Their debt has been paid. God has accepted the payment that Jesus has made. Jesus is alive. And his resurrection confirms our salvation. Great preacher who passed away in 1980 or 81. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this. The resurrection is the proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work that His Son did upon the cross. Isn't that great? How do you know? How do we know that Jesus did enough? God put His divine stamp of approval on the work of Jesus when He raised Him from the dead. Great teacher of a hundred years or so ago, R.A. Torrey said this, When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. When he arose, he rose as my representative, and I arose in him. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know the atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open grave and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know that the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins have been. 
My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement has covered them as high as the heavens. My sins may be as deep as the ocean, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement swallows them up as as deep as eternity. (laughs) Wow, I wish I could preach like that. Man. (laughs) I've said many times, when better sermons are written, I'll preach them, okay? (laughs) That is the profession of a true Christian. Verse 9, you confess with your mouth Jesus as your Lord. You're believing in your heart God has raised him from the dead. That's your hope. That's your confidence. The gospel is a simply glorious profession about a simply glorious person and it results in a simply glorious promise. Verses 11 to 13. Two famous Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah 28, Joel 2.32 that confirm God's promise of salvation. Listen to the promise. Listen to the promise. It's a living promise. Verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's promise. This is God's promise of salvation. Notice, that is a universal promise. No distinction. Jews, Gentiles. No distinction. Messiah, Jesus for the Jews. Messiah, Jesus for the For the Gentiles. It's a universal. What did God say to Abraham? Through your descendant. All the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. Blessed in Messiah. That promise is universal. And that promise is unconditional. Verse 13. Everyone. Who calls. On the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, unconditional, everyone. Isn't that a glorious word? I've told you before, I'm thankful verses like this don't say Sam Polson because I've Googled that name and there's several of them, okay? Might be another one. But it doesn't say Sam Polson. It doesn't say your name. It's better than your name. It says what? Everyone. And when God says everyone, you know what? I'm just simple enough to believe he means everyone who calls will be saved. Everyone. That includes you. You. Now, I have two questions, and I'm closing with these two questions. (laughs) 
And eternity for you is in the balance for these two questions. Number one, ever in your life have you placed your name there? Everyone believing Jesus is Lord, confessing Him, believing that He's raised from the dead, everyone who calls on Him will be saved. Has there been a time in your life when you from the depths of your heart, with all seriousness and sincerity, confess that Jesus is Lord and you have believed God raised him from the dead and you've called upon him. Now I ask you, if you've done that, did God do what he promised? You say, well, I have doubts. I, I have doubts. Okay, we have doubts. What do you do with doubts? Here's what I do with them. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a doubt killer right there. You see, I can, I can, I can gaze my doubts. I can examine my darkness and I find no hope there. Here's my hope. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, well, I might have not been completely sincere. Yes. You know why? Because you're a sinner. And sinners are never completely sincere about anything. How do you measure sincerity? It's not that you were perfectly sincere. It's that Jesus was perfectly sincere. Amen. It's not that you did enough. He did it. Are you going to wrap your arms around yourself? Or are you going to wrap your arms around Jesus? Are, are you going to take stock of your fears and live in your fears? Are you going to say... God Almighty who cannot lie, you said, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I meant it. I called. You can't lie. If he can't lie, then what did he do? He saved me. <laughs> Agree with God. <laughs> you don't have to go up into some experience in the heaven. You don't have to go down into the depths of some dark experience. The answer is right in front of you. Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now here's the second question. If you have never done that, you have never, will you do that today? Today is the day of salvation. This is the time. Don't boast of tomorrow. You have this moment. I have, to the best of my ability, tried to share the gospel with you. Will you, will you today surrender to Jesus as Lord? 
calling on him in faith to save you. Will you? Will you? Today. Father, my plea is that right now while I pray, And eternity is in the balance for some. And I'm asking Christians to pray. Will you pray? That the devil will not snatch this seed away. Will you pray? That today people's doubts will be lifted. Brothers and sisters, will you pray with me? That today people will see Jesus. Will you pray with me? And dear friend, will you believe and call on Jesus? He paid it all. He did it all for you. Today, will you call on Jesus? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I won't embarrass you, no one will embarrass you, but I'll pray for you while we're praying. If you're here and you would say, Pastor Sam, with all my heart, today I'm calling on Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Our heads are bowed. Would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? God bless you. God bless you. Just for a moment. God bless you, my dear friend. God bless you, my dear friend. Anyone else? God bless you. May put that hand down. Thank you for that. My dear friend, whether you've acknowledged with your hand or not, what I'm asking about is your heart. Confess Jesus. Lord Jesus. With all my heart, I believe you're the Son of God. Lord Jesus, with all my heart, I believe you lived the perfect life I could not live. Lord Jesus, with all my heart, I believe you died for my sins. Lord Jesus, with all my heart, I believe you were raised from the dead and that you are the Lord. And with all my heart, I ask you, save me. take control of my life I truly believe now friend it's not because of that prayer but it is through faith in Christ that you're saved now would you thank him would you thank him pray Lord Jesus thank you for what you did for me thank you for this promise that you've given Thank you that I am one of the everyone. Thank you that you had me here today. Thank you that you spoke to my heart. Thank you that you have heard my prayer. And help me now to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.